How's that for a slice of fried gold? Oh, you think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. You guys see all the boobs in this movie? There were some. I know I got the uh, G-rated version, so I missed <laughs> like all of the stuff. I got they're the, drawn exactly like you would draw the, boobs if you are, were like a 14 year old. Are, are they all <laughs> yeah. the, Gary in the version you saw? Are they all wearing tankinis? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I got you. <laughs> oh man. And, and the other thing is, is, is it weird? Well, I guess I should uh, probably just start the show. I suppose we could do that <laughs> if you guys wanted. I don't yeah, know sure. if anybody's interested. In Say that. your thing. What is my thing? Um, it well, is, hello. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, hello. And welcome to Cinema Shock, a podcast dedicated to the history and evolution of cult and genre movies. I am Gary Horde. What of the I'm Justin Bishop, and we're joined today by uh, cartoon boob enthusiast, Mr. Todd <laughs> A. Davis. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> hey, aren't, aren't we all, though? Are, I mean, aren't we all? Yes. Aren't we all? <laughs> Yeah, let's, I, I'm let's sorry, I, I was quickly reminded why I liked this movie when I was I was a child. <laughs> <laughs> let's be let's be honest. We've we've all we've all taken the uh, the Jessica Rabbit test. <laughs> There's a test. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So you see the scene, and then and then someone goes, "How do you feel about that?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the difference is is like Jessica Rabbit. I mean, I can't believe we're gonna have this conversation. Jessica Rabbit <laughs> is still hot. And her boobs are very motion sensitive. And these yeah, women's boobs, these well, women's boobs look like they would fucking murder you. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I mean, although they said for the design of Jessica Rabbit that they actually uh, gravity work, they actually planned it so that gravity would actually work in reverse for her <laughs> so that she so that she actually she is actually an impossible woman. So, oh. but I imagine, well, I mean, they rotoscope so much of this. So I imagine it's close, closer to reality, although it's man, very far man, from I've, reality. I've seen the, I've seen the, like the rotoscope over the, the, the footage of the rotoscope over the, the, model. the actress and they, yeah. they took some liberties. Uh, yes. Yes, they did. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks. So this week on the show, we are continuing our series on the career of Dan O'Bannon and this is going to be a fun one. This is going to be a fun movie to talk about. I think it's our first animated film and it's one that, you know, Dan O'Bannon had, you know, only a small contribution to, uh, but an important contribution, I think. And I think it's still an important step in his career and his career has been pretty interesting. Uh, you know, the more that we learn about Dan O'Bannon, the more interesting his career seems. And it, the more and more I realize how, just how he ha- how he kind of had his hand in so many different projects so across so many different even venues like not just film but as we're going to talk about today and and you know 
in comic books as well. I think it's really cool. Uh, for a guy who created a movie as big as like Alien, though, he never really reached that level of success again. Uh, or at least he never had a, his singular vision hit the screen quite in the way that that one did. Uh, because, you know, as we've discussed, just for a little recap, you know, his version of the Alien script was changed pretty drastically. Uh, but he is the guy who came up with the main concepts alongside with Ronald Shusett. He's the guy who got H.R. Giger involved. He's essentially the creator of Alien, uh, even though the the what finally hit the screen wasn't 100 percent Dan O'Bannon. I mean, it's, for kind of, a lot, it's kind of hard when you set the bar that high. Yeah, it certainly is. I mean, yeah. that's, a, that's a hard it's a hard one to replicate. Yeah, <laughs> it's a hard success sure. to replicate. They tried multiple uh, times. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but for a lot of Obama's career, he was the guy who was just like so close to the spotlight, whatever, without ever quite being in it. Uh, he had his hands in a lot of movies, often in very small ways. Like in when, you know, he worked on the computer graphics for Star Wars. Like, yeah, technically he worked on Star Wars, but just just kind of, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, and that's the case with the the movie we're talking about this week as well. Uh, this week, we're talking about a cult animated film based on a cult comic book, uh, one that O'Bannon occasionally wrote for. And the movie version just so happens to use two different segments that he wrote. Uh, that movie, of course, we've already talked about it a little bit in our intro, but it is uh, 1981's Heavy Metal. Columbia Pictures presents Heavy Metal. A trip beyond the future to a universe you've never seen before. A universe of mystery. A universe of passionate fantasies. A universe of terrifying evil. A universe of magic. Heavy metal. Heavy metal. A step beyond science fiction. The heavy metal in this movie just feels like good old fashioned rock and roll. Oh, you mean the music specifically? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the music uh, with with open arms by Journey is not what I would consider heavy metal. <laughs> right, right. Also, to think about, I don't Devo. think it would have been considered heavy metal at the time. None of this would be considered. I mean, maybe the black, there's some Black Sabbath in there, but that's even more hard rock than heavy metal. There, I mean, heavy metal as we think of it now, I don't think really no. quite existed at this time at least at least not not much no but you can definitely see where i maybe that maybe i'm putting the cart before the horse here but i feel like this is well it was very influential for a lot of for a lot of different projects but i kept thinking of metalocalypse i was like yeah. man yeah this is totally the set the foundation for well things, i think they both things use like um i think they both use some of the same type of art as inspiration like that like those album covers those like prog rock album covers you know oh, yeah. uh, which a lot of this is very inspired by or was very inspired by this but so before we discuss the heavy metal movie we of course have to talk about the heavy metal magazine i went down a rabbit hole looking up heavy metal um i've always been fascinated by it and it, it's got a pretty fascinating history uh, Todd is just <laughs> grinning at us and showing his collection of heavy metal magazines yeah. on the screen that you guys can't see, but he's very proud of them. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> I always remember thinking that it was kind of a 
I don't know, like a forbidden comic book when I was a yeah. kid. Because it was. I mean, it was it was for adults. I'm sure that if I went to a comic book store as like a 14-year-old, they probably would have sold it to me, you know. But <laughs> if my mom had found it, she probably would not have been very happy about right. it. So, We're making so this I, kid into a man, showing him these <laughs> heavy metal titties. <laughs> robot boobs. Robot boobs. Yeah, I mean, robot boobs. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so... Heavy Metal, the magazine, it started out as a licensed translation of a French science fiction magazine called, and please pardon my shitty French, as I'm going to probably fuck this up, but uh, Metal Herlant. Does that sound right? Does that sound French? Did I sound French when I said that? A little bit. A little bit. Okay. <laughs> I was, a, it's so weird. Like I just got the taste of a baguette in my mouth, like right as you said that. <laughs> So odd. Um, you, anyway, you, had that, just, that, you had Justin's baguette in your mouth. You heard me. <laughs> <laughs> but that that name literally translates to howling metal, which is a fucking cool name, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Howling metal sounds sounds more metal than heavy metal. It does. <laughs> it does. Uh, yeah. In the mid nineteen seventies, a publisher by the name of Leonard Mogul was in Paris to jumpstart the French edition of National Lampoon magazine when he discovered. Uh, this magazine metal Herlant, was created in 1974 by comics artists uh, jean-pierre dionnet and jean gerard who we've discussed here on the uh, on the show in the past better known under his his pen name of mobius of course we know that he was a collaborator of dan o'bannon's both on uh, alejandro yodorowsky's dune and briefly on alien we did discuss that a whole lot on our alien episode which is wild since we talked for like four fucking hours on that one but he did do some concept drawings for Alien as well. In fact, one of the more influential stories that appeared in Metal Horlant was one that was written by O'Bannon and illustrated by Mobius called The Long Tomorrow, which we'll, we'll get to a bit more here, here in a bit. Uh, but the two had started working on that story during their time together in Paris while they were working on Dune. But the final product, which was published in two issues of Metal Horlant in 1976, has been incredibly influential in the world of cyberpunk the long tomorrow is is quoted by a lot of people as being a major influence uh, especially in in cyberpunk stuff uh, designs from that uh, you know inspired everything from blade runner to tron to the abyss philip k dick himself has said has quoted heavy metal magazine and very specifically the long tomorrow as a major influence on his work oh yeah so, i mean you can see that you can see that in God damn near every one of his stories. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So Leonard Mogul and National Lampoon, they purchased the rights to publish the magazine in the U.S. under the name Heavy Metal. And it was just, you know, a, a translation at the time. They were using these comics that were written and drawn by French artists, and they were translating them in English. That's basically what Heavy Metal was. And publication for Heavy Metal began in April of 1977 as a glossy, full-color month. It wasn't the size, I don't know, it, for any of our listeners who have not seen a heavy metal magazine, it is designed as a, like a magazine, not as a comic book. If that makes sense, it's bigger, glossier, uh, it's the size of a magazine, not the, not the smaller size of a comic book, which is a great way to kind of highlight the art and to kind of make it stand out as something different. And because it was originally a translation of a French publication, the magazine wasn't bound by the, the Comics Code Authority. The Comics Code Authority at the at the time had a lot of of power in the in the 1970s, and therefore, because it was not under the power of the Comics Code Authority or under their you know under their rule, they were allowed to feature explicit content that wasn't allowed in a, in traditional American comics. And I also have to wonder if 
the format of being a format of a magazine instead of a comic book, a quote unquote comic book had something to do with that as well. Most likely, I think because of the, I mean, the cover illustrations alone have always been less cartoony than the average. Oh yeah. And they're more like paintings. Yeah. Yeah. And with the wide format and it was always, you know, included with the magazines uh, as opposed to the comic books, it was generally out of sight, out of mind of most kids, even though it was essentially a comic book. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) While the magazine featured initially featured stories written by and drawn by European comics creators, it would eventually evolve to include North American contributors like Richard Corbin, Bernie Wrightson, and of course, Dan O'Bannon. Uh, So by 1979, the magazine also began to feature text material in the form of short stories. And by 1980, it was featuring work by well-known sci-fi authors like William Gibson, Harlan Ellison, and William S. Burroughs, Stephen King. I mean, like very well-known guys. And it would later even feature interviews with pop pop culture figures, guys like Roger Corman, uh, Federico Fellini, John Waters. All these guys were being interviewed by Heavy Metal Magazine, which is which also makes it a little bit distinctive from your typical comic. Yeah, absolutely. And then in 1981, heavy metal made the jump from the pages to the big screen. So in the late 1970s, National Lampoon magazine, uh, which we'll get into the history, a deeper history of National Lampoon, I think later on down the line as we maybe discuss some of their films. Oh yeah. uh, Because they've got a very long and very interesting history just as a magazine before they even got into making movies, Mm -hmm. but they had their first success in the film industry with the release of John Landis's Animal House. If you really want a little bit of background on that, we did an episode on Animal House on our old podcast way, way early on. It's probably a bad episode compared to hopefully what we're doing now. But I do know that we discussed a little bit of the history of the magazine back in that episode. So if you scroll far enough back into our archives, you might be able to find that. But Animal House was produced by a guy named Ivan Reitman. You guys probably know Ivan Reitman's name now, but at the time he was more of a a producer. Uh, He'd actually got his start. Ivan Reitman, uh, who's Canadian, got his start with a couple of like early David Cronenberg movies, uh, like Rabid, if you've ever, and Rabid and Shivers, uh, both of which are far from being comedies, both of which were actually produced by Ivan Reitman. But with Animal House's success, they figured, you know, National Lampoon, they're like, we might as well try to make a movie version of the other magazine that we own. Like we, we have the rights to it. It's ours. Uh, so they asked Reitman, to spearhead the project because they were happy with his work on Animal House. So Reitman approached screenwriters Daniel Goldberg and Lynn Bloom, who had just worked on Reitman's directorial debut, Meatballs, and would soon do the same with his follow-up film, Stripes, both of which are, of course, classic classic comedies. Oh, yeah. uh, so Reitman gave them copies of the magazine to see if they could kind of work, you know, look through the story, see if we can work out a screenplay and make this work as a feature. The problem was that they couldn't get the rights to all of the stories. You know, uh, a lot of the original writers were in France, so they had to they had to go to France to get the rights to each story. And a lot of those were not owned necessarily by the magazine; they were still owned by the creators. You know, these were creator-owned stories, so they they'd have to try to convince some of these guys, "Hey, let us use this for our film as well." And at the time, so this is the late '70s, early 1980s. There weren't 
a ton of like animation studios, uh, aside from Disney, of course, who were doing feature length work, long form animated films. So Reitman had to kind of figure out a way to go about getting the film animated. So he started looking at smaller boutique animation houses from around the world. And he ends up hiring each of these like different animation houses to do their own segment on the film. So a guy named Gerald Potterton was credited as the film's director. Uh, he's the director of heavy metal. He was kind of hired to oversee the entire process and hire the directors for each segment because each segment had its own director, uh, you know, with a story this size. Potterton had no way to oversee everything, especially with animation houses from all over the world working on it. Uh, they had people working on it in London, Toronto, New York, France, Los Angeles. Like they're all over the place. So each, so there's a director at each of these locations actually supervising each one. And it was made over the course of about three years with a budget of about $9.3 million, which, you know, is, is significant, but not like not crazy for an animated film, even at the time. Animated films are very expensive to, mm. to produce. So I think as we as we discuss the film in more detail, I think the best way to do this, guys, is gonna be kind of like we did with with Creep Show back in our George Romero series. I think we just break it down one segment at a time because they are vastly different and they they vary greatly in quality sometimes as well. So I think it, I think the best way to do it is to kind of break it down one at a time. And that's kind of the way the magazine is structured. So it works out. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to start off right away with Dan O'Bannon. So fittingly, the very first segment, which is not really a segment. It's really the title sequence. The title of it is Soft Landing. That's the way that that's the name of the story that it's based on. Uh, but that, that it, the story as it is, is really just a two-page spread in Heavy Metal Magazine. It's very, very short, and there's no dialogue. So it's a, so I, I, I'm curious as to what O'Bannon's script for it looked like, you know, when he was writing the comic, because it's literally just like a Corvette hooked to a rocket that parachutes to Earth. Uh, but it makes for a really cool title sequence. Oh, yeah. But the, yeah, the original... Dope. Yeah, it looks cool. And the, and the original comic was, of course, written by O'Bannon. It was illustrated by a guy named Thomas Warkenton, who I'm not super familiar with, but I have read, read, <laughs> quote unquote, read this, this comic, because uh, it's pretty, this one's actually pretty easy to find online. And the artwork is, is pretty incredible and looks, you can definitely tell that the animated version of it is very inspired by the art from the comic itself. Oh, yeah. And it, this, you know, in terms of, quote unquote, writing this, since there isn't really any dialogue or anything really to read, for some reason, it makes me think of Sin City, where Frank Miller just kind of was like, hey, I like I like this thing. I like this thing. I like this thing. I'm going to put them all together and just stick it out there. And it, it works. <laughs> it's really yeah, cool. it works as, a, as kind of a visual. Yeah. You know, it, so the segment itself in the film was directed by John Bruno and Jimmy Murakami. John Bruno does a lot of work on this film. I think this is the only one that he's officially credited as director on, but he was sort of an art director for a lot of the film. Uh, so, but Murakami in particular had a pretty interesting career outside of this film. Uh, I, I went down a little rabbit hole looking him up and he did a lot of work in animation, but he worked in live action as well. So in fact, the year before Heavy Metal was released, he had worked on two different Roger Corman productions. Uh, he served as the director on the New World Pictures Star Wars ripoff called Battle Beyond the Stars, which is one of the more famous Star Wars ripoffs out there. 
And he also did uncredited work on humanoids from the deep. So he, he actually directed both of those, or at least partially directed humanoids from the deep. Uh, but for this segment, the way that they did it is he actually shot a real Corvette suspended on a stage, you know, on a gimbal, and then painted over it. He painted over the real Corvette. So it's it's kind of cool. It's a very cool looking segment, I think. It looks amazing. And I was trying to figure out if they'd actually just used that footage because the detailing is really great. I was trying to figure out exactly what technique they used. It but. definitely looks very different from anything else in the film. Mm-hmm. It's uh, been so long since I've seen this movie. I totally forgot about this segment. And then immediately the first thing I thought of was Elon Musk. So Elon Musk <laughs> was inspired by this. Yeah. Well, I was like, I, I found that out because I was like, did Elon Musk get inspired by this? Or did Dan O'Bannon predict Elon Musk? <laughs> or like what happened? But anyway, so there you go. The Tesla with Starman uh, is, is, uh, orbiting around the sun as we speak. So thanks, Dan O'Bannon. Yeah, I mean, like when I say he was inspired by it, like he he fully claims that this was that that him putting that Corvette on a rocket was inspired by heavy metal. Like Elon Musk <laughs> has said that it's. Uh, I, I think when he actually tweeted about it, he actually made a heavy metal reference nice. uh, in his tweet. Elon Musk did, which is yeah, it's pretty wild (laughs) but yes when i was watching it too that was the first thing i thought of so i had to go find out yeah so the the soft landing segment segues into a segment called grimaldi uh, which is the name i guess given to the astronaut in o'bannon's segment because it kind of goes right into it and uses that astronaut as a character Um, and that's not based on any existing comic from the magazine it was basically created as a framing device for the film. Uh, it's, it was directed by Harold Whitaker, and this little segment really just gives us a reason to be introduced to the Lochnar, which is the name of this green orb that links the story uh, in, a, in a weird way. <laughs> it's, a, it's a really weird framing device. Uh, Reitman and his screenwriters had wanted some way to link each segment so that they weren't just jumping from like one to another. So they somehow came up with this idea of this, this green orb that, influences people throughout the story and it seems to have different powers in each story it's it it doesn't make a whole lot of sense honestly it's kind of silly Uh, one of their early ideas for how to link them was like a carousel Uh, i guess there was going to be like a carousel in this house and each ride each thing on the carousel was like part of like took you into a different story uh, which is interesting they even storyboarded it and i think maybe even did a rough animation of that but some for some reason just decided we're going to go with a green marble yeah, I saw it on the uh, I saw it in the special features on the Blu-ray, and it's yeah. uh, it's an interesting it's an interesting presentation. I I think that might have actually, you know, if I had to choose between one or the other, I think the carousel would have been really cool. I think it would have been really cool too. And I think it, it, the thing with the Lochnar is that they t- they tried to make that part of each story, mm. you know, which sometimes feels a little forced in yeah. trying to integrate it into the plot of each, each of these stories. Some, right. Cause like I said, it's, it makes sense in like the, the next segment we're going to talk about, cause it's a major part of the plot, but in some of them, it's just like there, like in the, the captain Stern sequence, you know, mm-hmm. like in some mm-hmm. of them, it's just a little strange, but it's, it's almost like the devil really wants to bone this preteen girl. And it is like, he is just like <laughs> hanging out in this room. Bitch, let me tell you how evil I am. Like, your parents are going to hate me. Uh, I'm the coolest. Like, this is some shit I've done. <laughs> I do all the bad and stuff. The, 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 um, 
voice for the Loch Nahr. He doesn't get a credit in the film, but it's a guy named Percy Rodriguez. He's like a movie trailer voiceover guy. Nice. That when they were trying to cast that role, they heard this guy's voice. And they're like, we got to get this guy to be the Lochnar. And uh, I don't know why he doesn't get credited in it, though. But yeah, that's, that's weird. if his voice sounds familiar, it's because his voice is in a ton of movie trailers. In, <laughs> in a, a world, world he's like where that shit guy. went south. <laughs> it was probably my fault. Don't you understand? I'm crazy. I'm the Lochnar. I fuck it up. <laughs> okay, cut. Uh, we're going to have to do that again. <sighs> yeah, we can't say I'm, he, I fuck it up in the trailer. The Mr. Rodriguez. I don't know why he keeps saying he's the Lochnar. Have, all right, have all right, you, all, you ready to go have again? Have y'all heard of COVID? Lochnar! Eighth <laughs> Lochnar! Do you need some water? Are you good? All right. Oh, we're going to run it again. The Trump presidency. Lochnar! <laughs> We're never going to get this uh, done. Everything, everything bad is blamed <laughs> on the Loch Nahr. Uh, the next segment of the film is called Harry Canyon. And although O'Bannon doesn't get credit for this, it is based on that uh, the Long Tomorrow comic that I mentioned earlier that he helped to create with Mobius. Although the Harry Canyon character, the main character in this, was original to the film. He, he's not in the original comic. But like that world, that futuristic New York, that's from the Mobius comic, the Long Tomorrow and uh, looks a lot like uh, the fifth element, wouldn't you say? Very much like the fifth element. <laughs> <laughs> like it's to the point like where they should sue. This is happening. Like it feels like they should sue Luke Besson. Like it feels so much like the fifth element. I'm going to be perfectly honest with you here. I'm not afraid to be the, the odd man out. I did not think about that until you just said it. And now I'm like, oh, holy shit. That is, that is fifth element. I didn't yeah. even. I didn't even it's think about that at all. It's 100% the fifth element. Uh, I mean, you can see a little bit of Blade Runner there too, but it's a little, it's a little dirt. It's, it's, I guess it's not as dark as, as Blade Runner. Oh, right, man, right. I just wish that there was a segment where Bruce Willis was just boning Mia Jovovic and saying like, <laughs> I'm going to give her the stars and stripes forever. <laughs> 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 Just good, oh, old, man. good old America. And that's what he says when he climaxes. Oh, <laughs> it's either that or Lochner! <laughs> Raise the flame. Look out, Lilo. I'm coming half mast. <laughs> uh, so this segment was directed by a Belgian animator by the name of I'm going to I'm going to mess this up. So I apologize. Pino Van Lamsweerde. <laughs> Sure. That sounds like, that sounds like the way you say his name. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not really familiar with him, but I looked up a, a few of these animators and a lot of them were not necessarily animation directors outside of this, but a lot of them were just animators, you know, that, that worked for other directors. And a lot of them worked on a film called Tiki Tiki that was directed by Gerald Potterton. So I think he was just taking a bunch of guys who'd animated for him on another film and saying, hey, you get this segment, you get this segment, you get this segment, you know. Uh, I, I don't know that that's how it worked, but it seems it sure does seem that way. It's plausible. Yeah. It also makes perfect sense now knowing who the director is that that's just probably how he viewed Americans. Like he Maybe, just assumed yeah. all Americans thought this. I bet when they're fucking somebody, they say they're giving them good old American know how. <laughs> oh, it was you're also based on a comic. Based on a comic that was co-created by a Frenchman. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this one, this segment sees our first appearance of one of the SCTV alums that we'll see throughout the film. In this one, John Candy has a small role as the desk sergeant. You know, the uh, when they go, when he, he takes the unconscious lady to the police department, John Candy plays the desk sergeant there who's like, 
So it's going to be like a thousand dollars a day to, to investigate this. Although the title character of Harry Canyon was voiced by an actor named Richard Romanus, who'd also worked on several of Ralph Bakshi's animated films and would later even have an occurring role on The Sopranos. I think he was the Night Stalker. <laughs> That's Ramirez. Oh, Richard, Richard Ramirez. Ramirez. How did you guys like this segment? I really dig this one. I it's, I love that noir. He's not a detective, but it's that whole. He plays that the whole role vi- that like. Yeah, yeah, that whole vibe. Um, I dig that. And, yeah. uh, you know, when that's when that sort of type of story is juxtaposed on a futuristic, uh, super futuristic New York. It's a lot of fun. I dig it. It's fun. This this one also uh, immediately tells you that heavy metal is gonna, not going to be shy with the gore because he like just melts that dude in his backseat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. but I like this one a lot. I think the um, I think the voice work is good, but I, I really like the animation style in this one. Mm-hmm. Animation style is going to change throughout these, and some are better than others. But this one. I just really like the look of the background. Like I like how detailed and like scratchy they all look. It's yeah. it feels like a Mobius comic, honestly. It's uh, honestly it, my it, favorite one. Uh, yeah, it's it's really good. Up, it's it's uh, I, I really dig this one, and I dig that. Well, now I'm less impressed now that I realize it's. Well, I guess I shouldn't be, but now that you pointed out that it's it's the fifth element, I'm like the fifth element son came of a later. Bitch. You should be less impressed. With <laughs> I the know fifth that's element. what I'm saying. I guess I should be less or more impressed that it that it created the fifth element. But yeah, but I like their I like their version of New York too. It's like shitty '70s New York, which is what the New York that existed at the time they were making this. Uh, only now there are flying cars. There are still you know cabs on the ground, but there's also flying cars in the air. It's an interesting universe that they created. It's always we. It's always little eerie to see older films versions of the future of the future yeah where the twin towers are still standing i always oh, do I, you see them in this yeah do yeah. you i couldn't remember yeah and yeah, it's, it's always, it's always very weird. strange yeah, yeah. Uh, very strange i still can't figure out like I, this is really wrecking my world man because i can't i the, the one of the coolest things i always thought about with the fifth l i'm sorry i keep coming back to this but is that luke facade like he was i remember like being in high school and Hearing Luke Vasan started writing this when he was 16 years old, and I'm like, man, that's so fucking brilliant, Luke. Bisson yeah, he was probably reading good. heavy metal magazine. I was like, he was jerking <laughs> off the heavy metal. Is what he was doing. <laughs> well, here's the thing we now uh, know yes. about Luke. She, she gets in the cab wearing a dress. Let's just make her wearing duct tape. Because remember, I mean, and Luke Basson is French, so he was probably reading this in Metal Herlant in the in the mid 70s you know yeah uh, also let's remember that luke basson we now we know is a big piece of shit so <laughs> yeah so it's easier to hate him <laughs> it's easier to it's easier to dismiss him or it makes you feel better about it at least so all right the next segment next segment is called din and din is based on a character of the same name created by a comic artist named richard corbin uh, this one has a pretty interesting history here richard corbin had made a career of writing sci-fi and horror comics for books like Creepy and Eerie and Vampirella. Uh, And he originally created the character of Din for a short film called Neverwhere. Uh, Mm. So Neverwhere, which has no association to the Neil Gaiman book of the same name. I was about to bring uh, that up. But it's the name of the alternate dimension that we see. You've got your your nerdy protagonist, and then he travels and you know to this alternate universe and transforms into Din, uh, the character of Din. But Neverwhere is like the alternate universe that he travels to. The comics this this one's probably got the longest history as a comic than anything else that that we're discussing today. But 
it, in the comic, it's a pretty obvious nod to stuff like Edgar Rice Burroughs' John Carter books, you know? Very much. But when Corbin decided began writing comic stories about the character, he took that inspiration from John Carter and made it decidedly hornier. <laughs> and this is easily the horniest segment of the film, but it's got nothing on the comic book. The comic book of Den is super horny. Uh, if you look up the character on Wikipedia, for instance, which I did, his you know you know when you look up a comic book character, list their list of like super abilities. Like if you look up Spider Man, it's like abilities can walk on walls, shoot web, whatever. You know, super strength. For for Den, when you look him up, it lists peak human strength, speed, durability, agility, reflexes, and senses, hand to hand combat, and being. This is a quote from Wikipedia prodigiously sexually endowed so yes that mean justin one of dim's superpowers in the canon of the comics is he's got a huge dong (laughs) that's a superpower yep (laughs) and i love the way that they uh i love the way that they uh show that in the film without showing his huge dongs you just have him look down and going hmm big Mm." (laughs) (laughs) yeah the character (laughs) <laughs> the character of Din has a pretty long publication history, uh, dating from his first appearances in the early 1970s all the way through the late 1990s, including a run as the star of his own comic book, which ran for 10 issues. So I'd really like to get a hold of some of these comics because the art looks really cool. And that's like, what Richard you'd Corbin's- like to get a hold of. <laughs> <laughs> Richard Corbin's got a really cool art style. He does a lot of airbrush work, so it all looks like prog rock album covers like it it really does uh it's really cool looking stuff like his landscapes and stuff are really cool so this segment in the film was directed by jack stokes who's a british animation director who's probably most well known for his work on the 1968 beatles film yellow submarine which also gerald potterton worked on so that's probably how they knew each other and this time we've got john candy here again john candy this time is the star of the segment he plays den both versions he plays both the the nerdy like teenage version and the big bald giant cocked version of dead <laughs> is it so what did uh, you guys think of this segment this was fun i i will say that i was you know it's it's very unfair that you it's okay to show titties but they couldn't show den's huge dong that was off limits for this film yeah, that, that does seem like a double standard there Richard Corbin was also wasn't he the, also the art and I'm legitimately asking this because I don't have it right in front of me the artist on like the bad out of hell stuff I feel like he was the it same would not guy. surprise me yeah it's either him or me, but I don't know Rosetta it's go- all I'm gonna Google it as Rosetta esque but that very Rosetta esque style that uh, yeah it was on him. album covers and the him, sides yeah. of vans <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah exactly yes yeah he did do bad out of, the bad out of hell album cover. Mm. yeah that's and, really cool. and i did like, not I know that but that's all of them i think yeah that's awesome but, uh but yeah so that that kind of if you know what the bad out of hell cover looks like which is iconic then you kind of get a, an idea of what his art style is like and in the in the comic the character of den looks a lot like what he looks here uh but painted in a more realistic way but still mm. kind of cartoony in design it's a very interesting style it's kind of cool uh, but th- yeah, this segment, this segment's weird. Cause I, I like, I think the segment's very entertaining. I think the animation in this segment is the most inconsistent Yeah, because like then the look of his character changes from scene to scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot in it. That's just, it just feels inconsistent, but as a story, I think it's pretty 
pretty entertaining. You know, it's pretty fun. It's a, you could see how this would, this could be a, an ongoing series. I mean, the villain was you know, weirdly drawn. Sorry, Todd. No, no. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I was Ryan actually just about to mention the villain. I feel like, uh, you know, if he came from earth and the woman that he's with comes from earth, it makes, it begs the question, who else is there from earth and what were, what was the, what's the reason why, you know, and all yeah. that stuff. But I, yeah, I kind of wish, yeah, there's definitely enough there to, to have a series. I think there's enough there to have its own feature film. I think this is yeah. like basically an MMORPG before there oh, were yeah, MMORPGs yeah. is what's <laughs> happening. And yeah. so like uh, this this story predicted like uh fucking whatever that one was, World of Warcraft or something. Yeah. <laughs> it was like yeah. they're there. So so for a bunch of uh now I feel like just like I'm an asshole, but I was gonna say it just feels like a incel wet dream to be like, oh now I'm a super buff dude with a huge dog and I'm gonna fuck people. And uh, it is 100% like teenage male, male fantasy. Fan- yeah. T- male, teenage male fantasy, which yeah. if you watch the, the documentary, I think it's called imagining heavy metal. Mm-hmm. The filmmakers fully admit that they're like, this whole movie is male fantasy. Like who, what nerdy kid working on a science project wouldn't dream of like being, you know, this big buff dude who all the ladies want and he's a, he's a hero of us of a story and gets to defeat the evil villain. Like it's, it's all male fantasy. That's why the women are drawn the way that they are in this. It's they're all drawn like a teenage boy would draw a woman, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. like very unrealistic. And it, it's, uh, but yeah, I, I think it's funny that like the, if you listen to the filmmakers and in interviews, they're like, yeah, I mean, yeah, we are horny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah we all hung out in the studio we were just like rock hard the entire time <laughs> i used my cock to trace the straight lines i needed <laughs> so okay we've we've mentioned john candy a couple of times and you might be wondering if you've watched this film why there are so many well-known comedians in the film's cast well at the time they weren't super well known they weren't the stars that they would become just a few years later but guys like at the time, you know, John Candy and Eugene Levy were members of Second City, which is a Chicago-based improv group. But in their native Canada, because these are these guys are all Canadian, Second City produced a highly influential television series called SCTV. Uh, that's where folks like Candy and Levy, Rick Moranis, uh, that's where the, the McKenzie brothers originated. Uh, Catherine O'Hara, Martin Short, Harold Ramis, all of these people got their start on SCTV. So that begs the question, why did Reitman cast these comedians in his animated sci-fi fantasy film? It was because he knew them. They were his friends and he he had worked with them before and he was comfortable working with them. And he knew that they had the talent to pull it off, even if they weren't known as voiceover artists. And that's pretty much the end of the story. That's pretty much like, he's like, yeah, these guys were my friends and it was easy to get them to come do this. (laughs) And it works because- John Candy does like five different voices in this thing. Mm-hmm. And there's only one that really sounds like John Candy. And that's the robot that he plays later on. Oh yeah. That one yeah. Does, is just his like regular John Candy voice. Yeah. If you know that Den is John Candy, you can hear it, but he's definitely doing something different with his voice. You know, as, as a lot of great voiceover artists do. I don't imagine anybody is, but if you're unfamiliar with SCTV, it was kind of the precursor to Saturn Saturday Night Live. There was oh, definitely, yeah. Way back when, it was kind of this was this was Canada's SNL. Yeah, they did a lot of great stuff, and a lot of those a lot of those uh, comedic actors 
they're actors. They have they have really good chops and they do, yeah. they do they do a good job with the stuff. Plus, I think SCTV also did a lot of stuff on the radio. So mm-hmm. a lot of them were kind of used to that sort of thing. If you're unfamiliar with John Candy, too, I mean, some of the younger listeners might not know him. He sadly passed away now, but he was also a, a very famous actor known for his huge cock. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's be the podcast that starts that rumor <laughs> of John Candy and his massive cock. <laughs> I think we're. I think this episode is already on uh, record as having the most uses of the word cock. <laughs> we're gonna keep it going. Do we need to go back to baguette? Should we? Should we revert back to back to baguette? His wife like, constantly had to deal with him saying, "You want a piece of the double C?" <laughs> they tried to trademark that for actual treats, but. <laughs> All right, so let's move on to the next segment. The next segment is called Captain Stern, and that's based on a character created by the great Bernie Wrightson. Uh, I'm sure you guys at least are familiar with Bernie Wrightson, but for any listeners who might not know, he's an incredible comic book artist, uh, probably most well-known for co-creating the Swap the Swamp Thing character for DC in the early 1970s. Uh, he also did an incredible illustrated version of Frankenstein that I would highly recommend picking up if you if you uh have a chance i've i've got a copy of that it was put out by dark horse comics but it's basically mary shelley's frankenstein but with illustrations in between by bernie wrights and like incredibly detailed nice. illustrations it's really great i've got a big cloth bound version that actually is autographed by bernie wrightson because i met him at a, a comic con a few years ago before he passed away nice. uh, super sweet man really sweet guy uh, it was it was it was really cool because I mean it was cool and sad at the same time because this was like there were more well known comic artists at this or more more well known to modern comic fans at this convention. This was at Heroes Con in Charlotte a few years ago, and they all had long lines. You know, Bernie Wrightson had nobody like in line at oh. his table. He also didn't have like a big setup. It was just like a little little tiny sign, but he was one of like two people that. I was very excited to meet at this con. The other one was Jeff Darrow, who also had no line. Uh, so, but the cool thing was I got to sit and talk to them for a while, you know, which was really cool. And I got to get their autographs and everything, but Bernie Wrightson has always been one of my favorite comic book illustrators because his, his style looks so unlike anyone else's. Yeah, absolutely. And I, sorry to revert back for a second, but I feel like the very first segment, Harry Cannon, is uh the style's very reminiscent of Jeff Darrow. I feel yeah, like it, it, it's got it a actually, lot, it's got a lot of that to it. And I just I, I blanked on the name and I was just like, eh, I don't know. But yep. once you said that, I was like, oh yeah, that's it. <laughs> no, I actually very much agree. And I mean Jeff Darrow, I don't think was really doing anything at the time. So I don't wouldn't say it was influenced by him, but Jeff Darrow and Mobius's styles have always been pretty similar to me. Jeff Darrow does this thing where his 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 panels are filled with details yeah i mean you could pour over a single page of a jeff darrow comic and pick out little details for an hour it is it is a it's a where's waldo like every panel he does is a where's waldo and it's it's incredible like yeah well and and that honestly that segment feels like hard-boiled a lot Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, which is which is jeff darrow and frank miller uh, a comic they did in the in the 80s i guess yeah well and to go back to go back to your Yeah, to go back to your uh, interaction with him at uh, at Heroes Con, I highly recommend when when all this stuff gets back to normal um, and you go to those cons, seek out seek out the uh, the senior the veteran uh, 
creators. Yeah. Um, because first of all, like Justin said, unfortunately, more often than not, they're sitting there by themselves. There's no, yeah. Line. Unless they're Stan Lee, you yeah, know, yeah. Unless they're well, Stan not Lee. now, but you know, uh, yeah. Well, I guess, uh, Neil, uh, Oh shoot. Adams. Ne- yeah, Neil Adams is yeah, Neil Adams is still doing his thing and he's a nice guy. You can go talk to yeah. him for a while. But uh if there's if they happen to be doing a panel, forget every other panel, go to that legends panel and just listen to them tell stories about working in the working in the industry. It's so great and they have yeah. so much knowledge of working in this industry and they'll just they'll sit there and talk to you all day and it's really a lot of fun. I just thought that was wild, man, because it's like this yeah. guy created swamp thing like yeah. he created swamp thing <laughs> yeah and i didn't nobody, come into i didn't come into this episode knowing that i was going to be this guy but i will also point out that uh bernie wrightson also did the cover art for uh meatloaf's uh dead ringer album so <laughs> did he really yeah he really <laughs> wow, did wow so, this is just turning into a meatloaf appreciation i'm learning episode. now i'm like i don't know enough about meatloaf apparently he's like a comic book nerd or something <laughs> like i, I bet i bet meatloaf loved heavy metal magazine oh, he probably yeah. did yeah well and you know jim steinman who co-wrote bat out of hell or and a lot of stuff with meatloaf passed away last week yeah yeah he just passed away he just passed oh, away gee. last week yeah i don't know why this turned into a meatloaf episode i don't i don't either <laughs> <laughs> that's it this is not what i expected coming into this but no, i'm just kind of sad i mean this whole this whole movie does have a real bad out of hell feel to it honestly it really does they're very much inspired by the same things but anyway back to captain stern the captain stern character feels very different from the kind of work that wrightson is most well known for which included uh, realistic and highly detailed pen and ink drawing his illustrations of this character if you look up you know go go google captain stern comic and you'll see images of this character and they're still incredible and very highly detailed they're just more purposely cartoonish like his his face is clearly drawn as a parody of of superman spit curl big chin the whole thing yeah 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 (laughs) so this segment of the film was directed by julian harris and paul sabella uh no john candy this time (laughs) but we do have a couple of other sctv uh, alum there most notably eugene levy as captain stern himself which i think I had no idea Eugene Levy was involved in this film until I saw the opening credits. Because probably the last time I saw this film, I didn't know who Eugene Levy was because I was before I'd ever seen any of the... Just the, admit the, it. The first time you knew who Eugene Levy was was when he was giving uh, his son a lesson on fucking pies. Well, that's probably true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, is, that is probably true. No, it 100% that, it is for me. I was like, that yeah, guy became I, memorable from there for me. Yeah, because I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure I saw American Pie before I ever saw like best in show or any of the of the other mm-hmm. Christ, great Christopher Guest movies that he was in. Uh, but he's got a long history as a comedian. It's it's. I'm glad that Schitt's Creek, at least, has given him more mainstream exposure to people who only know him as the pie fucker's dad. <laughs> God, Schitt's Creek so, is so good. <laughs> it is really, really good. good. Outstanding. Uh, a, an actor by the name of Joe F- uh, Flaherty plays the lawyer and he is another SCTV star. And you might not know his name, but he's probably, mo- you know his face because he's the kind of guy you see pop up in a lot of stuff. You probably, most people probably at least know him for his role in Happy Gilmore. I was he's the guy. Say, he's a, he Happy Gilmore. Yeah. Yeah. He's jackass. He's that guy. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. gosh. <laughs> so, and yeah. then you've got John Vernon who played Dean Wormer in Animal House. Mm-hmm. Uh, he plays the prosecutor here. Well, he's also the bad guy in Ernest Goes to Camp, I think, isn't he? 
Yeah, learning the oh, the construction God. foreman guy. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so he's he's a, he plays the prosecutor. So a lot of you I know, need the well chief to sign these papers. <laughs> All right. So well, what did you guys think of this segment? It's fun. This there's definitely a more comedic vibe to this one. It's a real bummer ending for the poor the poor uh, hand over fist. Yeah, head over fist. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> that's all. Well, that's because the main character is a jerk, but you know, he does. <laughs> this segment is really interesting to me. It's, it does feel very cartoony, you know, I mean, and I mean, obviously the whole movie is a cartoon, but the, the, the way the characters are drawn, they look like caricatures more than I think any other segment in the film, which is going for realism, uh, mm-hmm. you know, with the, with the rotoscoping and stuff. This one though, it's pretty fun. The, I, I like the character designs a lot. Uh, I would like to, I would not have minded seeing more films with like this character. Like I wish that heavy metal had had like sequels eventually, but yeah, you know, or yeah. where, where some of these segments like Den and like Captain Stern were able to, we were able to see more stories with those characters later on. And well, that would have been kind of cool. Yeah. You know? That would have been kind of neat. So this segment ends with, you know, you've got Hanover Fist cut off hand <laughs> that is flying towards earth holding the Lochnar as like a, in like a marble size, you know, well, that segment was originally supposed oh, to blind after masturbation Lochnar. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that segment was originally supposed to segue into a segment called Neverwhere land. Did you guys yep. see this on the, on the Blu-ray? I did. It's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah I wish that cool. they'd done it. I, I understand why they didn't. Cause it, it slows down the, the pace of the film. Mm-hmm. But basically this segment, it, it starts with that. It starts with the hand going down and it goes down to earth and it hits like a primordial pool, right? And essentially everything, it, it, it's a minute and a half long segment that goes through the history of the planet. Everything from like the dinosaurs going extinct to the rise of like the Nazis, like and everything in between, like everything that bad that's happened on Earth is showing that the Lochnar has influenced all that, which is a cool concept, yeah. especially in the in the context of the rest of the film. And I don't know, obviously, what the final animation would have looked like, but if you look at the rough sketches for the animation, the style is pretty fucking cool. Yeah, and it would have been really cool to see how they would have translated that to animation. As uh, it, it is. was, as it is, the rough the rough animation is phenomenal it yeah. looks it looks really great i was like it's really Can't cool they just clip this into the film <laughs> yeah i know uh it, it was do- done by a guy named cornelius cole was the artist and the original rough animatics were actually set to a loop of the beginning of pink floyd's time from nice. uh, from dark side of the moon right very cool yeah yeah <laughs> so I, I think i think on the um version that's on the blu-ray it's got another piece of music on it but yeah, that was yeah. what they originally set it to uh, it's it's a really cool segment and i do wish that they would have included it but at least you can see the rough animatics of it on the blu-ray i mean it's been it's been released on home video releases of heavy metal since the original vhs release the original vhs release like if you watched the whole movie at the end of the credits they would show the rough animatics of the sequence as like a special feature Man. so the way that the segment was supposed to end was with the rise of Hitler, you know, and, and then that segues into World War II, which brings us to our next segment, you know, and so it, it, you've got this image of Hitler 
And then the camera kind of pans up and then you see these B-17 bombers fly over, which is the beginning of our next segment, which brings us back to Dan O'Bannon. So since this is a Dan O'Bannon series, let's let's rewind a little bit to talk a little bit about where this particular segment might have come from with Dan O'Bannon. So we're going to going to rewind a little bit to back when he was writing that memory script. Remember the one that would eventually turn into alien we talked about for oh, yeah. like four hours that day. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so if you recall, Dan O'Bannon was kind of stuck after writing about half the script. So he went to his friend, Ronald Chousette for advice on where to go with the story. And Ron said this, well, remember you told me an idea you had once for a movie it was the one where gremlins get on a B-17 bomber during World War II and give the pilots a lot of trouble. So why don't you make that the second half and put it on a spaceship? So after, you know, after he told Dan that, he kind of put a, you know, light bulb went off in his head and the structure of the screenplay kind of wrote itself at that point. Instead of gremlins on a B-17, it was a killer alien on a spaceship. But that that's kind of where the idea came from. Although obviously, you know, a lot had to be changed when the format changed, but that gremlin idea is one that he would end up going back to. It, it was an idea that was based on stories that Dan had heard growing up about gremlins that would damage airplanes. Uh, it was an idea that had inspired stories in the past, uh, most notably in the Royal Doll book called Gremlins that was published in 1943. But this was kind of a story that uh, was kind of, it originated around World War II with World War II pilots and bomber pilots. And they would kind of blame everything on gremlins, kind of tongue in cheek, blame mm-hmm. everything on gremlins. And, you know, so Dan O'Bannon takes this idea and he reworks it into a, his segment for heavy metal, which was originally actually about gremlins attacking a crew of a B-17 bomber before it kind of turned into a zombie story at some point in development. And this one was not written as a, as a comic book, piece i don't think i could not find any information about this actually being a comic uh dan obana wrote comics for for heavy metal but this one seems to have originated originated as a script for specifically for the animated film and this might be my favorite segment of this whole movie i think i i mean it's hard to pick there's a couple i like the harry canyon one a lot i like the tarna one that comes at the end but this one just it's got a cool feel to it. It feels very different from the rest of it because it does, it doesn't take place in some far off world or in the future or anything Mm -hmm. like that. Like every other segment in this does, Mm -hmm. but this one feels more than any other one to me. Like it could have been adapted from an EC comic. Yeah. It feels like an episode of like tales from the crypt or even the twilight zone, you know? Yeah. I was just about to say, it's kind of like an EC comic meets twilight zone. It really is. And yeah. it also features O'Bannon's first foray into the world of zombies, unless you count the undead townsfolk and dead and buried as zombies, which I don't know that I do. I don't think they're just undead, not, but not yeah. zombies. I think zombies have to be like corpses. I mean, I guess they're corpses. Yeah. Yeah. They're is corpses. dead and buried a zombie movie? Did we discuss that last week? I think it is. <laughs> but they don't eat brains and they don't eat flesh. No. Zombies are flesh eaters. Yeah, that's true. I mean, no. you know, there's differences like the like the uh, you know the, Rome- the, the Romero undead. zombies are like walkers versus like you know the 28 Days Letter where but they're they still sprint, all where they sprint eaters. at you. Yeah, they're but still flesh eaters. I would say they're the undead because like Frankenstein is undead, but not what we would call a zombie. True. Uh, the, the Dracula is undead, but not what we would call a zombie. Yeah, yeah, that's Frankenstein would have been 
Obana would be a huge fan of of like Frankenstein style stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, what did you guys think of this segment? Oh, I really dig this one. Uh, yeah. it's, you I know, love the animation style again. I was going to say from that from that first pan around of the bomber, uh, yeah. you know, it kind of invokes the, you know, that look from the Corvette at the beginning of the, you know. Yeah. In the well, it was done in a sequence. very similar fashion, actually. Yeah. yeah. Um, so a, lo- a lot of heavy metal uses a technique called rotoscoping. Uh, for those unfamiliar with this specific type of animation, it's something that you see in a, it's, its history goes back to the beginning of animation. I mean, Snow White uses rotoscoping, but it was used a lot in the animated films of this era, like the 70s and early 80s, including those by cult animation director Ralph Bakshi, uh, who I know I've referenced him twice already in this episode, uh, but I think we're probably going to have to do a whole series on Ralph Bakshi some, at some point down the line because this stuff is really cool. Yeah. Uh, but basically the process of rotoscoping includes... You shoot footage of real people, models, or actors on film, and then you trace the shot to animate it, basically. So you're getting all the movement from, from the footage, even though it's not 100% like an exact tracing all the time. Uh, it's, it's a really interesting process and gives a very specific feel to the animation, I think. Yeah, because I was looking at it and I was like, you know, it's a really, it's a really good way to go. Um, but if done wrong, it looks really bad, you know, so it's, and it's, it's funny to think of, you would think, oh, all you have to do is just shoot the actor. You don't have to worry about anything. No, you really kind of have to get the lighting right. Cause if you don't get those shadows and that texture, it's just going to look like flat blobs on the screen and it's it's just not going to work well. It might move like a person, but it's not going to look like, sure. There's still a lot of actual animation it's not like a, it's not necessarily a shortcut by any right means. yeah i think i think that's the misconception is that people think it's a shortcut it's not. yeah it's not a shortcut there's still a lot of work involved in it yeah. it's just it gives a, a more realistic uh form of movement i think uh, so but but in this segment specifically the b17 segment and they did they do this a couple of times in the movie but i think this is the first time we've seen it so far is they actually shot the bomber itself like the actual airplane using a 10-foot replica they built this big model of the b-17 so it's similar to how that they how they did with the corvette except in the corvette sequence they shot an actual corvette like put it on a gimbal and and move the camera around an actual corvette which is why it looks a little bit more like a photograph i think Mm. but in this what they did is they they made a 10-foot replica of the b-17 they painted it black and then they put white lines all around it. white lines uh, as sort of the outlines of what you would see as a black line on the screen. So the, the what they did is basically they shot it using a camera. They moved the camera all around it as if they were filming the movie, but then they reversed the negative. Mm. So all those white lines in the blackness of the bomber itself were reversed to where the bomber itself was white so that they could draw and paint over it. And the black lines remained as the black lines that you see on the screen. Uh, it's why that, gives it almost a 3d look to the airplane footage it's really cool yeah a lot of a lot of really great texture pops up especially Mm -hmm. gosh especially if anybody's like on the fence go get the blu-ray like this this looks amazing in blu-ray i love the look of the zombies too yeah yeah i think they look cool if you say texture one more time i'm gonna get rock hard right here on this <laughs> show no i don't know i don't know what it is with me and penis i think heavy metal really brings that out in me <laughs> you are obsessed a little bit 
with the penis that Gary, today, Gary. Some, something's something's awakening in something Gary. has awakened yeah. is it Gary the Lochnar Gary <laughs> we'll, we'll, bl- we'll blame it on the Lochnar <laughs> well, Gary what did you think of this segment Lochnar no I thought it was really good I mean this is one of my favorite ones is, um yeah so I I guess it's a testament to Dan O'Bannon that probably like the ones he worked on the most are my favorite segments actually yeah so. Uh, something about him appeals to me at that level, I guess. But I mean, we, we've talked about his love of EC comics in the past, and I think this really shows it. I mean, I, I feel like Dead and Buried, you know, we t- discussed that feeling like an EC comic or like a, it could be out of Creep Show. This does too. This feels like it could be like I've been watching the Creep Show TV show on Shudder, and this feels like it could be an episode of that. This it just has there's something about that twist ending, you know, where. The guy finally escapes the the bomber, parachutes out, and then lands in a airplane graveyard, basically, where all these other zombies come out. It's a great segment, and, and it's really cool. It's a really great ending. I just love this one. I just I really like everything from the animation style to the story. I just think it's really fun. The whole vibe of this one just speaks to me. I was uh I was reading something about um and you know I never got to find out if they got to an actual resolution and maybe this is more of an end thing but you know Dan O'Bannon's art in this one was was a big deal and and there in the recent heavy metal series apparently some of that artwork shows back up and there was even a um like uh, they're, well, I, they're putting I think out what merchandise happened, or something with, with yeah like they his. so in in more recent heavy metal magazine they used a they they wrote another b17 story okay basically using not necessarily the original art but the original concepts created by dan o'bannon based on that original art but they weren't giving credit um, to o'bannon right yeah i know I, re- I read a couple of articles on like bleeding cool about it where dan o'bannon's widow uh was having to like have some litigations, I think, with Heavy Metal Magazine over it. She was, uh, she was saying, "I would, I would welcome a word with these folks that are using yeah. his, uh, <laughs> his art." Yeah. So this one also uses, uh, I think, pretty notably, a pretty rad theme song for the movie. I mean, there are actually two. There are two songs in this called Heavy Metal, uh, but I like this one is called Heavy Metal parentheses taking a ride and it's by don felder who i think was like a guitarist for the eagles wasn't he wasn't don felder a guitarist for the eagles probably should have looked that up but i'm pretty sure he was <laughs> uh but yeah so i mean we haven't talked much about the music in this film he but was, i yes. think it's he was yes okay so sorry uh, i had to double check myself but yes he, <laughs> he was so obviously so. music's a, a huge part of this movie it's a movie called heavy metal uh although as we joked about before, this is none of this music is what we would consider heavy metal, but the soundtrack is really good. Like really good. I've I've got the, I found this one on vinyl a few years ago and it was like, I know it's pretty easy to find on vinyl, but it was like cool to just find it out in the wild, not looking for it. Nice. And I don't know, every, every segment of this features several modern you know at the time modern bands many of whom contributed original songs for the film you've got devo who actually devo voices one of the bands that appear in the film i think it's in the captain stern segment that band that's playing that's actually devo playing oh um, i you've thought got it was journey the, ta- uh, the 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 tara 
Is that in the Tara one? Yeah, I think it's okay. yeah, it's in the tar- it's in the bar where she goes okay. to yeah. Yeah, it's in the, the guy's yeah. got like the weird things on his eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so it. that's so that's Devo. Uh, you've got Journey, Blue Oyster Cult, Cheap mm-hmm. Trick, Black Sabbath. Sammy Hagar does the other heavy metal theme song. Nice. Uh, but and I love the soundtrack to this. I mean, it's it's definitely dated, but kind of in a good way, and it fits the film really well. I think mm-hmm. very much. And the film also has a pretty great score. The score doesn't get talked about a lot, but the score on this was written by a legendary film composer Elmer Bernstein who had actually worked with Reitman on Animal House which I'm sure is how he got the gig on this one but the score itself is it's really good for like a fairly you know a kind of cheap animated film produced in Canada in the late 1970s like it's you wouldn't expect a guy like Elmer Bernstein to work on it but he gives it his all and it's a great score I literally yeah. think like this same exact time he was doing heavy metal and he was doing uh American Werewolf in London oh yeah um, at the same yeah. time so just interesting side nice. note, but well, let's move on to the next segment. And the next segment is called so beautiful and so dangerous. Uh, it is once again, based on a comic from the magazine. This one was written by Angus McKee uh, and McKee is a British artist known for his science fiction illustrations, M- much like someone like Chris Foss, who we talked about on our alien episode, you know, he did these sci-fi novel covers, you know, these big painted Mm-hmm. Things and he did a lot of the background art for this as well. Uh, he actually worked on the film. the The segment itself was directed by John Hallis, who's an, a Hungarian animator who's probably most well known for his work on the 1954 animated version of Animal Farm that we all had to watch in school at some point. <laughs> yeah, uh, but the cast for this one once again features Levy, Flaherty, and John Candy. Uh, as a possibly circumcised robot. I don't know that we ever get an answer to that question. Uh, and also features uh, fellow SCTV alum, Harold Ramis. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Harold Ramis plays one of the, one of the aliens. One of, so this one, this one's weird to me because it starts off in this kind of cool segment within like the Pentagon yeah. and this really cool painted spaceship that comes down mm-hmm. that is straight out of, uh, Angus McKee's artwork. It's mm-hmm. really cool. And then it just turns into like a weird stoner comedy once they get on the right. spaceship. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's it's a very strange segment that I almost like watching it. I was like, did did we start a new segment and I wasn't paying attention? Is this the same story? <laughs> yeah, is this the same thing? Is this the same story as what we were watching before? It's uh-huh. very strange. And it, it's got these two aliens who are like this, these Cheech and Chong guys uh, and they're snorting what appears to be very large lines of cocaine. Uh, but, but in the story is some sort of cleaning solution. Uh, it's really weird. It's a really weird story. Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's probably my least favorite of the whole bunch, but it's got stuff that I really like in it. Like, yeah. especially the first half of it before the aliens show up, I think is, is pretty strong, but you were really into uh, the robot sex. Well, here's the thing, Gary, I'm Aren't not really all? into the robot sex, but <laughs> uh, let me tell you guys about my first experience watching this movie last week. Oh, I thought you were gonna tell us about your first <laughs> robot sex experience. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. Well, hang on, Todd. This, this episode almost finished. took a He's turn. Finished. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I, I, before I watched this movie, like an hour before I watched this movie, I took this little gummy. It was a Delta eight gummy. Are you guys familiar with Delta eight? I am. Yeah. So it's a legal form of THC uh-huh. and took this gummy and totally forgot. I, I didn't even think about it. Cause it, they have a very delayed, you know, 
so I, I start watching this movie totally forgot that I'd done that. And then it gets to this scene specifically the scene where the lady wakes up next to the robot and asks if he's circumcised. And that's when it clicked. Oh on. no. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, I'm watching the scene. I was like, and I'm, I'm going, what the fuck is going on right now? <laughs> what is that? And then I realized I watched the rest of the movie stoned essentially and realized that that is the best fucking way to watch this movie. <laughs> I had from this segment on, even though my favorite segments actually are probably mostly the ones before, but the next one, especially the Tarna segment, especially uh, watching that stoned is an experience. I had a blast. Nice. <laughs> it, was, nice. it was a fun time, but it, I do specifically remember it, it, it activating as soon as the, that robot wakes up next to that lady, which wow. is an interesting <laughs> sensation to say the least. <laughs> interesting sensations all around yeah <laughs> that's wild well i mean i guess that's the one i mean it's the stoned aliens like flying uh, yeah. through space so yeah did you guys feel the same way though that this segment was a little more a little disjointed yeah uh, yeah a little disjointed yeah. that's a good word for it yes it it, it lost me during this segment uh yeah. for the most part uh i the, the biggest thing i remember from it besides obviously the lady begs a robot is uh the did you know todd did you notice that when they're flying uh sure did <laughs> okay i was about to say the enterprise is in the background uh-huh what NCC, really yeah, yeah there's a destroyed ncc 1701 uh the rem the saucer section and uh, the main body the really the, cells are, the, the, the cells are broken off but you can clearly see ncc 1701 i thought wow. it was gonna be with that yeah i don't know and maybe just that quick. it didn't look yeah, maybe that it was so enough destroyed that they were like, "Oh, what do you mean?" But uh, yeah, <laughs> maybe maybe just nobody ever noticed. I don't know. Yeah. But huh. uh, but it's definitely there, and you can tell. And I thought that it was because I, I was wondering, you know, because they destroy the Enterprise in like Star Trek Three. So I was like, maybe this is connected. This is actually before Star Trek Three. So I don't know. Maybe they predicted Star Trek Three, where <laughs> yeah. Kirk self destructs the Enterprise. Yeah. Wow, I did well, not know that. I've, and I've watched this movie. I mean, over the last couple of weeks, three times, counting the rough cut version, mm-hmm. but which that probably wouldn't have appeared in anyway. But yeah, I, uh, it I does does in the rough cut too. Yeah, it's even does in it? the rough cut. Yeah, huh. it's uh, yeah, this one feels real disjointed for me too. And but the cool, I think the coolest part. It's so cool it makes me want to make it my background on every screen i own is the is the smiling spaceship hovering over the pentagon over the pentagon yeah, it's like, a great shot it's one of my favorite shots cool. in the in the whole movie yeah it's one it's one of my favorite images from this movie i just wish the rest of the segment kind of lived, lived up, up to, to it that. yeah <laughs> so the final full segment tarna is an original story that was written by daniel goldberg and lynn bloom uh which we we mentioned before those were the guys who had worked on meatballs with Reitman. And this one's not based on a specific story, but it is based on a collection of stories that was originally created by Mobius from Metal Herlant called Arzach, A-R-Z-A-C-H, although it's actually spelled different in every issue. (laughs) But uh, these are these wordless short stories that were highly influential and remains one of Mobius's most famous creations. Uh, they're really cool. If you, I, I would I would urge you to look some of these up online. 
they're really, really cool. And uh, it's just like wordless, you know, this, it's basically a, the focus is about this universe that he's created, this fantasy universe. And it is, I think this is an incredible looking sequence. I think this is mm-hmm. the best looking sequence of the whole bunch, just mm-hmm. the backgrounds and everything that the, the technology they were using on this at the time was sort of groundbreaking. I mean, there wasn't a lot of, they weren't, they didn't have motion control, computer controlled camera movements at this time. So they, but they were, they were racking focus between foreground and background, things like that. It's really a really well animated sequence, I think. Yeah. And I mean, and you talk, uh, you know, and if you listen to the creators on that documentary, they're like, yeah, it looks a little, uh, you know, looks a little janky now, but it's, you can first of all you can tell they really poured their heart and soul especially into this segment and secondly yeah they were using stuff like brand new technology and you know really trying to make something uh the flying sequence specifically with tarna uh the way that they use that same technique like they used with the b-17 bomber Mm -hmm. but they created a landscape that was all black with white lines on it to create these sweeping camera movements over the landscape that they would then animate the her flying on the back of that dinosaur thing into mm-hmm. and it's really cool and that whole segment like you see her flying into the giant skull of some huge dead beast and yeah. then down into this all these pipes and everything like it is a really yeah. great sequence i think yeah, it's the through best these pipes the to movie. this weird temple type place yeah. I, like th- i think this segment more yeah i think this segment more than any other is ripe for um ongoing series and well, and, and i think the segment to to me when i think of heavy metal like mm-hmm. heavy metal magazine or heavy metal the movie this is the type of imagery that comes to mind yeah i know that the magazine tells all kinds of stories mm-hmm. but you know that that fantasy world where there are are giant dragons beasts dinosaurs whatever you want to call them uh sword and sorcery stuff like that's the kind of imagery that comes to mind when the word when the when the heavy metal magazine is discussed and i think this encompasses that more than anything else in this movie yeah yeah, yeah just that image fair. of her is is iconic just yeah uh, on the on the thing so the the main character of tarna was this was shot using rotoscope of course uh and they used this model uh, named carol desbians she's a model from toronto from canada uh, she stood in for the character and they basically like they they designed the character of Tarna and then went around all these like modeling casting agencies looking for someone. And they're like, oh, well, that's Carol. That's Carol. You, that, that, you've already drawn her. And you can actually watch this footage of the rotoscoping over her, uh, like the, the scene where she's putting on her outfit, you know, which... Mm-hmm. It, you've, you've watched, I know you've watched the documentary, Todd, where the, the director is like, yeah, I just had never seen an animated movie where a woman puts on a whole outfit. I was like, and I'm thinking, why would you have seen that? He's <laughs> like, yeah, I just thought it'd be really cool to show like every I've been searching for this like, one very specific thing my whole life. <laughs> I'm like, your idea to do this had nothing to do with hiring a beautiful model that you were then going to have to figure out how to swirl a camera around her body parts <laughs> to shoot this scene. That had nothing to do with it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mr. Animation <laughs> director who has multiple times admitted how horny you were while making this movie basically (laughs) (laughs) 
but it is, I mean, it is a cool sequence, uh, yeah. the, even though it does, it, it feels very superfluous. It is a very well animated sequence. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's almost feels like a slowed down version of like Ash, you know, those segments uh, from like the Army of Dark or the Evil Dead movies where yeah. Ash is putting on all his, all his gear, but it's like slowed down and sexy. <laughs> Nobody's going to believe when, it. When, when she does the glove, if she'd have gone groovy. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's so going to believe it, but I was legitimately kind of intrigued with how the outfit comes together. Like I was kind of like, always wondered how these work. This is a, yeah. it, like it's some superhero kind of outfit. Like it's, it's kind of neat watching it. It's like uh, layers. You've got layer, you got, you got the stockings and then the boots. It's a, it's a process, right? how superman does it so fast in his phone booth because <laughs> well, we'll have to ask somebody superman? to animate that you ever thought about that with superman like is he wearing the boots under his regular shoes right is he wearing those That's and where's question. the cape where's the cape the whole time yeah. shouldn't he just have a big bunch like on under his like massive, under his suit like just, massive, <laughs> just like sleeping blanket roll yeah. across the back of his shoulders <laughs> where is he keeping where is he keeping that thing uh, anyway if you watch this segment hopefully you've watched the movie if you're listening to this podcast but if you watch this you probably notice one specific shot that is definitely not rotoscoped and that's the shot of the of the exploding house near the end because that house that they use which is used at the beginning as well it's where the astronaut lands is they, they took a model and they rotoscoped the model and it looks really cool in those segments. It, it has a similar look to, to the Corvette, like kind of realistic, but you know, clearly painted over. Mm-hmm. So that was originally that explosion was originally supposed to be rotoscope, but then the, the distribution company calls the producers and they're like, Hey, can you have this done by August? And the movie was supposed to come out in November like October, November. So all of a sudden they've cut like two months, two or three months off of their production schedule. Uh, so that it's simply, they did not have enough time to rotoscope the the house at the end, mm. the, the explosion. But you know what? I think it looks really cool. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. I think it's a really cool looking, I think that that quick change from mm. animation to live action, it just works for me. I don't know why it just yeah. looks neat. I just think it looks very unique and very cool to me. Yeah. And I mean, given the imagery uh, with the Corvette and the B-17, it's it's not it doesn't take you out of what's going on. It still fits the movie. Yeah, fits. It really does. It still fits the movie. So Heavy Metal was released on August 7th, 1981. It was a pretty moderate success at the box office, Uh, grossed a little over 20 million dollars on that nine million dollar budget. Critical response was mixed. Gene Siskel uh, called it a, quote, fine but disturbing cartoon, which I love. For some reason, I love that quote. I want yeah. I want that to be like on the on the video, like yeah. Gene Siskel, <laughs> fine but disturbing. Uh, and Den, oddly enough, seemed to be the favorite segment among most critics, which I feel like it's one of the most inconsistent of the film. Yeah, I think it says more about the critics than it does about the actual segment yeah I mean, there you it's go like it's uh watching this new bone a bunch of ladies yeah mm-hmm. they just want to be big buff guys that bone a bunch of ladies and uh <laughs> yeah that's it well i'm curious gary about some of our internet reviewers then if they also enjoyed the den segment or if they enjoyed the film at all because i feel like this is a movie that because it does feel very dated it feels like a product of its time and a lot of times especially in animation that can lead to modern viewers not really not really digging it, you know, which I can kind of understand, but at the same time, it's like, 
I do feel like you have to consider when the movie was made. But Gary, were you able to find some, you know, people who might not be fans of the movie? Well, Justin, it's the internet. So always on the internet, there is somebody that needs a nap. This is uh, Jay Darkly says worst animated film ever. We get a lot of those worst something ever's on these segments. And I feel, I I don't know if that was, I don't know if that's inspired by the comic book guy from Simpsons or if, (laughs) or if they're aware that they're being comic book guy from Simpsons, but I've noticed that because as I edit these episodes, there's a lot of like worst horror movie of all time, you know, that's (laughs) Pretty hyperbolic statement to make. Worst That's the internet, Justin. Of animation and rock and roll ever. <laughs> it's a uh, really good comic book guy. That, voice. that was Thanks. that was pretty solid. <laughs> Thanks. It's uh no, it's, it sounds like Twitter. I mean, Twitter is every day like this. Um, yeah. <laughs> this one says uh, this movie is bad in every way conceivable. It's adult oriented yet approached in a very immature manner. The animation is anywhere from sketchy to stiff and dead. The plots in each of the stories only serve the singular purpose of indulging in whatever immoral and ridiculous themes that the writers thought of. The film as a whole, (laughs) the film as a whole is just shallow and mindless, like living out some immature adolescent comic book geek's dream. You don't sit through this film, you trudge painfully through it. For a film that requires no thought whatsoever, this movie causes your head to hurt too much. Why waste time with it? There are better adult-oriented animated films from the area or era. See those. I would, I would that like person examples. Really fun at parties. Yeah, they sound like <laughs> sound like a blast. Yeah, I got a couple more here. Major Boobage is the title of this review. I can't believe anybody gave this piece of crap five stars for it is one of the dumbest animated movies I've ever seen and an insult to anyone who loved Heavy Metal magazine. For those who don't know, Heavy Metal was a fantastic magazine of illustrated science fiction, fantasy, and some horror that ran from the late 70s to the early 90s, characterized by adult themes, incredible artwork, and a cutting-edge aesthetic. It was the precursor to the modern idea of the graphic novel. Unfortunately, creators of the movie decided that adult means lots of gratuitous sex and lots of boobs and some drugs and some zombies. The target market, I suppose, was boys age 13 to 18 with an intellectual level concomitant, I've obviously fit into this group, concomitant to the amount of newly minted testosterone coursing through their bodies. But this middle school crotch level aesthetic is a betrayal of what the magazine was about and was for me a complete disappointment. And yes, I saw it as a teenager. Liked the boobs, but I hated the movie. With its cheesy soundtrack and Scooby-Doo level animation and dumbed down stories tied together by a story arc involving an evil green sphere, heavy metal is mildly amusing at best and boring at worst. And there is a lot of boring. If you don't want to pluck down your money, I suggest watching the South Park episode titled Major Boobage, which neatly skewers the animation style and themes of this idiotic movie in one of South Park's best parody episodes. It's a hell of a lot funnier and a lot more intelligent, and it's online for free. That South Park episode is really good. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'll I'll give him that. He seems to be really fixated on being offended by the boobs in this uh i have one more and i I was gonna keep them shorter but i had i had to include this one because this person really needs some recognition of how much of a nap they need yeah (laughs) (laughs) uh their review title is only terrible that's just the name it's wet circuit 15 that is their name 
Juvenile, mind-numbingly bland, cliched vignettes move from instant gratuitous sex to instant gratuitous war. Numerous droning speeches about war and destiny from people you don't care about. Mediocre animation that relies too much on rotoscoping. Tiny B-list radio play soundtrack and a nonsense story arc that is meant to hold it all together. This is getting a 3 out of 10. It's that bad. Side note, he gave it 1 out of 10. That's how I found this review. Uh... Heavy Metal is one of those films that fans love because of what it represents rather than what it actually accomplishes on its own. Although the source material may have been groundbreaking, the vignettes here are either boring or incoherent. The magazine was a collection of serialized adult comics and the film attempts to show a range of those stories, each realized with different animation teams based on artwork from the publication, but the film never pulls it together as a whole and is actually weaker than its individual parts. Two of the sequences rise above their genres. Din is a sarcastic take of barbarian slash fantasy genre with a muscle-bound hero literally having the mind of an 18-year-old nerd, an evil queen who interrupts a battle to have sex with the hero and a sneering gayish villain who seems ready for the whole thing to be over. But the sequence never gets a chance to LOL as a genre challenging satire. The animation is appalling and contrasts badly with the final sequence, Tarna, which takes its fantasy pretensions seriously. In this sci-fi story, so beautiful, so dangerous, a science a scientist reporting to the Pentagon on the impossibility of extraterrestrial life turns out to be a robot planted by aliens. When he malfunctioned and is retrieved via vacuum tube to the giant spaceship that looks like a kawaii-style smiley face, a sexy Jewish New Yorker secretary is accidentally sucked aboard as well. Beautiful and Dangerous is the best-looking and least dated in the entire film, and the gratuitous sex is the least irksome, although there's still plenty here to cringe at. The lone horror genre piece, B-17, written by Dan O'Bannon, stands out as the most memorable sequence told almost entirely through action and in real time. The story would feel at home in eerie or similar pulp comic from the 50s and really is an oddity in this film. It completely ignores the Lochnar story. It is better for it. I've read it was not an actual story from the magazine. Another oddball is Captain Stern, where the life of a rogue is examined in a court trial that gets interrupted by mayhem. The character animation here is refreshingly stylized rather than rotoscope, and the plot also dismisses the Lochnar arc. The opening sequence off landing shows an astronaut sitting in a vintage Corvette. The animation is processed with hand-painted Xerox frames, but would have felt dated even by 1981 in the age where MTV was exhausting alternative animation methods. Like most of the film, soft landing is a one-punch punch joke that you are stuck with for too long. Harry Canyon is a cliched effort at noir. Double cross set in a future New York City where cab drivers are the baddest dudes you'll ever meet. There's a girl with an artifact. There's a gangster. There's a death ray in the back of the cab for unruly passengers. It's low grade riding, although it's amusing to contrast this sequence with the fifth element where similar cab driver slash hero cliches are done with a wink and a nod. The peak sequence, Tarda, is handsomely animated, but slow and pretentious. This plot is so ridiculously unimaginative, belonging to the fantasy subgenre. Naked women in a temple with a sword that I could, I could devote an entire review pulling this apart. Meanwhile, the filmmakers are convinced that what they are showing is so amazing that they cannot cut away or edit for narrative pacing. Long rotoscope sequences, long speeches, the title character 
putting on skimpy leather straps for a really long time. People you couldn't possibly have any investment in are slaughtered, probably because it takes Tarda so long to get dressed. All with monumental self-importance. The only worst sequence in this recurring story arc that is meant to hold the film together that's Grimaldi, where the green orb Lochnar must convince a little girl how evil it is, apparently by talking her to death. <laughs> that is the review. Uh, he Very angry, wrote a lot. Sorry. At least but... he liked the Dan O'Bannon segment. Yeah, he's mm-hmm. into the Dan O'Bannon part. Regardless of what some of these, you know, internet reviewers think, the, the movie obviously has fans. It's it's gained quite a cult following over the years. A uh, big part of it is that it has, you know, well, the soundtrack's a big part of it. The soundtrack is kind of iconic. A big part of the, the reason that it's become such a cult item, or at least the reason it did initially, was because it was nearly impossible to see for a really long time. Because due to rights issues surrounding the music in the film, it would be 15 years before the movie ever got released on home video. Because, see, when the producers of the film struck a deal to use some of the songs, the deal that they struck was solely for the theatrical release. This is 1981. Video was not a big thing quite yet. I mean, it was on the cusp of being, but I think they just weren't forward-thinking enough to also include that in in the deal for the music. So So that they weren't allowed to use, contractually, they could not use some of these songs on home video. Mm. So the movie, you obviously can't release this movie without the songs. So it just never got released on home video. It wasn't until 1996 after Kevin Eastman bought the publishing rights to Heavy Metal Magazine that an agreement was reached that allowed the film to be released on VHS and Laserdisc. So you can thank Kevin Eastman for that among you know other turtley things. Yeah, I was going to say you don't know who that is. He create he co-created the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So. Yeah, he he grew up watching heavy metal or reading reading heavy metal rather yeah. the magazine. So it was a big influence on him. So yeah, he he became the publisher in 1996. He sold the rights later on, but he was instrumental. The reason that we have this movie on video now is because of Kevin Eastman like working for like 4 years to get it done. Yeah. Say what you will. I mean, a lot of people were influenced by this thing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh-huh. Uh, and then it even got a sequel eventually uh, in, the, in 2000 called, it was called Heavy Metal Fact, Fact 2, F A K K 2 in Canada, but it was released most everywhere else as simply Heavy Metal 2000. Uh, and I, I don't think I've seen Heavy Metal 2000. I remember when it came out, but I don't think I ever saw it. And, and the reviews are pretty pretty mixed on that one yeah i don't think i ever saw it either but uh yeah i and it's it's one of these things where for for dan o'bannon you know like he gets a little small part here but i i saw there was like it was another opportunity for him to to get some other stuff done and it still didn't happen like uh i saw where him and mobius had worked on a tv show together Uh, based on the long tomorrow yeah Yeah. basically i think there was even a pilot yeah 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 you can find the pilot online and uh it just i don't know it stinks that it uh that it happened that way i even found quotes from uh william gibson who you know to invented cyberpunk basically saying um a quote here from him says it's entirely fair to say that the way 
neuromancer looks was influenced in large part by some of the artwork I saw in heavy metal, specifically referring to the O'Bannon and Mobius piece. I've seen that this must also be true of John Carpenter's Escape from New York, Ridley Scott's Blade Runner, and all other artifacts of the style sometimes called cyberpunk. Yeah, hugely influential. Mm. And it continues to be, even now. I mean, th- this movie is its a cult film, but it's still kind of living on now. So there, there have been talks of a reboot for years, uh, since at least 2008, when it was announced that David Fincher was spearheading the project. He was going to produce it. Uh, he had plans to have Kevin Eastman, uh, Fincher himself, Guillermo del Toro, Zack Snyder, and Gore Verbinski all directing different segments. As that project kind of evolved, James Cameron got brought on as a producer who was also going to direct a segment. But the project had issues getting funded, even with all these big names attached to it. They had a hard time getting funding for it. And then it was eventually actually reimagined as the Fincher-produced show Love, Death, and Robots on Netflix. So eventually they just... There's a yada, yada, yada over a little part of this, and that's that eventually Robert Rodriguez ended up buying the rights to Heavy Metal, saying that he was going to produce it. That hasn't happened. And I don't, I couldn't find evidence of this, but I have a feeling that the reason that the Fincher project ended up being Love, Death, and Robots is because he was already working on essentially a anthology series based on Heavy Metal and no longer had the rights to the heavy metal name because Robert Rodriguez now owned them. Mm. So it evolved into love, death and robots, which you could definitely see the influence of heavy metal on that. Uh, if you've, if you've watched that series and if you haven't watched that series, I recommend it. It's pretty cool. I've been, uh, it's, uh, it's been on my list for a while. We just started penny dreadful. So that yeah. might be next. Yeah. It's pre- uh, season two is about to come out. So nice. uh, they just released a trailer for season two. So it'll be coming out soon. It's Very fun. Cool. Each, each segment, they're pretty short, uh, about the length of the segments in this, but they just release them as like episodes, but they might be eight minutes long, you know. Oh, cool. uh, but the common theme is either love, death, or robots. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty wide array of stories you can tell. And it's all various animation styles by different filmmakers. It's it's a really cool concept and very much shares its DNA with heavy metal. Well, that's it for heavy metal then, guys. And unless you guys have any wrap-ups, I, I think we all pretty much enjoyed this movie. I think we'd all seen it before, but it, if, if it was anything like me, it's been a while for all of us since we've watched this movie. I literally yeah. don't take since high school have I seen this yeah. movie. So yeah, yeah. so yeah. It, was, it was fun to revisit it, especially knowing a little bit more about the background of it. I think it's a, it's a really cool piece of animation history and a really important piece of Dan O'Bannon's career, even though it didn't it didn't exactly lead to a bunch of other jobs but none of his gigs seem to lead to a whole bunch of other jobs unfortunately for yeah. dan o'bannon <laughs> yeah, <that's true. laughs> uh if but, anyone's if anyone's interested like look go visit your local comic book store um heavy metal still running they they had a big uh they had a big uh you know uh issue 300 release yeah, which uh, is the some, one some, with the Dan O'Bannon cover, I think, isn't it? Is that the yeah, one with I the zombies so. on the cover? I think so, yeah. yeah. And uh I've been getting them I've been getting them monthly and they haven't missed a beat. They're it's it's still really good. And uh uh Tarna is still going, and I think they actually just started a Tarna series. Uh, I was about to say, I feel like I see Tarna pop up all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Man, I, I do wish that they I wish it was easier to find archives of heavy metal magazine you know like it's there's not a lot of like collected editions and things like that that i could find and i think it probably has to do with 
the stories being owned by the creators a lot of times that maybe yeah. they don't have the rights to recreate them in, in like a collected edition. But I really wish you could find stuff like that. I mean, there are certain characters like Din that have been collected, like in a you know collected edition of all Din stories. Right. But I'd like to read a lot of these like one shot stories, you know, that you just simply can't find unless you go find the copy on eBay and spend 50 bucks on it. Yeah. Yeah. Which is about what they go for. Yeah. I mean like cover price right now is about 14 bucks. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's up there. So if you're looking for vintage issues, good luck. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Especially because they're collector's items now. Yeah. It's kind of a bummer. I wish there was at least a, I wish they'd put out at least like a digital archive or something. Yeah. Where you could go back and visit. Or if they would partner up with, if they would partner up with comiXology or something like that, that'd be great. But they don't, unfortunately. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, Next week, we're going to continue our look at Dan O'Bannon's career. We're staying in the early 1980s, but a a vastly different genre than what we talked about this week with our our fantasy sci-fi animation epic. Uh, (laughs) Next week, we're doing a, it's an action movie. (laughs) It's 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 an early 80s action movie. It's called Blue Thunder from 1983, starring Roy Schneider, uh, not Rob Scheider. This from... Roy Scheider. Roy Scheider. Roy Scheider, not Rob Schneider. Yeah. <laughs> Always mix those guys up. Yeah, Ones easy to jaws. do. And not <laughs> Leif Schreiber. Not Leif Schreiber? He's not anywhere near it. It's not, not even close. <laughs> or D. Schneider. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's Schneider. not even Schneider. I don't know why. It's I had Schneider. Anyway, next week we're talking about Blue Thunder. It's it's a movie about a helicopter. It's about a lot more than a helicopter, but it's a movie about a helicopter. Uh, so if you're you not watch far that, off, <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to watch that one with us, yeah, you can find it streaming online pretty easily. Head to cinemashock.net. Uh, we'll have links to everywhere that you can stream that for yourself, so you can watch it along with us. You can also find all of our archives there on the website. I've also now I, I recently created a new section of the website where you can see all of our themes together. So if like you want to, there's a hub where you can click on a you know picture and you get all of your George Romero episodes, all of your Dan O'Bannon episodes. So nice. Uh, so it makes it a little bit easier to kind of focus on different segments of our show if you want to. Uh, so check that out at cinemashock.net. You can also find a link there to buy our merch, our uh, t-shirts, our hoodies, whatever else you want to wear, whatever else you want to slap a Cinema Shock logo on, a skateboard if you want. Who cares? Buy a Cinema Shock skateboard. <laughs> they, 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 have, they, they have the ability to exist. Yeah, just trying want. to run some contest about which catchphrase can win the most uh, sells. Yeah. You, uh, so go get your Johnny Has the Keys shirt. I actually yeah. support that one just for the sake of like... <laughs> It, it really rounds up everything I think about the world. If that wins <laughs> that we are in the darkest timeline. <laughs> oh, oh man. But well, how about you guys working? You found on the internet. I'm to, at, oh, go ahead. Todd. One at a time fellas. Oh, Todd. I, how dare I? Try no, to come no it's, I was going to say, you go ahead. I'm the guest. I, mean, I don't want to come before you're you, the Todd. guest. You're the guest for 30th for 30 shows in a row. <laughs> Our most long, our most, most frequent guest, most frequent guest. Uh, <laughs> I can be found at Mr. Todd A. Davis on all the socials. And if you like Star Trek, come find my uh, podcast, the computer resume podcast, where we are covering the entire Star Trek franchise in chronological order. And it's a lot of fun. 
I am at this is Gary Horn. I also have a wrestling podcast, which you can find at TIPW show uh, on all the social media. There's some good stuff coming out there, I think, soon. And uh, I just did an interview there yesterday, which I'm really excited about. I think you guys are going to dig that uh, goes way beyond wrestling and goes into all kinds of mental health issues and alcoholism. And uh, it gets really deep. So I think it's worth a listen for anybody. So I just have to throw that out there with a wrestler named Tom Latimer. And I think people are going to dig oh, it. Nice. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Did, did uh, What's her name? Join? Uh, Camille. Camille? Uh, not this time. He said no. he said he could bring her back next time. She was in a Is signing in New York. Yet? He tells all kinds of stories in this uh, in this podcast that he said she wouldn't have allowed if she had been sitting there. <laughs> so he tells a story about uh, getting hip tossed into a chair that broke and the leg went up his asshole. And, <laughs> and so all kinds of stories that he's like. My, my fiance would be like, what are you doing? Don't talk. Why about are you that. saying this? <laughs> Lochnar! <laughs> Blame the Lochnar. <laughs> it's always, always Lochnar. <laughs> well, I am at Justin underscore Bishop. You can find the show at cinema underscore shock on Twitter, Instagram, like us on Facebook, rate review on Apple. Uh, you can follow us on Spotify, share us with your friends, do all that stuff. And until next week, May the wings of liberty never lose a feather. Be excellent to each other. Johnny has the keys. I was expecting Lochnar has the keys. <laughs> Damn it. Oh, all right, let me take two. Lochnar has the keys. There you go. <laughs> Gary, talk more into your microphone. Oh, sorry. You've been doing that. Like, it'll your voice will go in and out. Your mama lets me go in and out. <laughs> there it is, ladies and gentlemen. There it Appreciate is. you joining <laughs> us for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God.